we're taught it's this chemical imbalance and that it's genetic. Well, there's a competing hypothesis of depression, something called the cytokine hypothesis. Sleep quality impacts every dimension of mental health. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with the awesome Smartcast and Najahi Events. More about those great sponsors later. Right, mental health. It seems to be a subject that keeps coming up. Depression, anxiety. How do we deal with it? There's so many challenges. There's some people that are just having a bad day that think they're depressed. There's some people that are clinically depressed that just think they're having a bad day. They get medicated. I've even been offered medication. But is that the solution? Today's guest Ellen Vora, okay, MD. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. She's the author of The Anatomy of Anxiety. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing the imbalance at the root. Dr. Vora received her BA from Yale University and her MD from Columbia University. So this is a highly educated lady on this subject. Her goal is to help her patients manage their mental health with diet and lifestyle changes as much as possible, only turning to medication as temporary tools or as a last resort. This matters to me, this subject, and I know you will have, if not yourself, somebody in your life that this matters to, too. Let's get stuck into a very important episode of this podcast with Dr. Ellen Vora. Cue the music. Organizations such as Smartcast, who are solving the problem of food security in the world, have supported this podcast because they believe in the mission that I'm on. When you understand the work that they do at trying to solve the problem with this massive population growth we've been having over the years and providing a way of bringing food safely to everybody, it really is something I admire. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Ellen, thanks very much for coming to join us on the show today. It's lovely to have you with us. Uh, Spencer, it's an honor to be here. I have been on somewhat of a journey. So I'm going to give you a bit of a background to my journey. And then what we're going to do is try and use me for the benefit of our lovely audience, try and use me as a bit of a a, a guinea pig. And uh, before we started recording, everybody, Ellen said, what a way to get a free therapy session. So (laughs) (laughs) if that's what's happening on the podcast today, then so be it. Okay. So first of all, I think maybe we should start off with tell everybody what you do why you do it, okay, and how you got into it. Mm, what do I do? I'm, I call myself a holistic psychiatrist, which isn't a household term, so you can think of it as like, I'm a weird psychiatrist. I went through medical school, psychiatry residency, came out of that decade of my life deeply disenchanted with our current state of the field of mental health. I felt like there was a lot of room for improvement, and I noticed that my patients weren't necessarily thriving when they would walk out of my office. They might have been masterfully medicated, but they weren't thriving or feeling fulfilled in their lives. So in crisis and, and as a sidebar, also really out of balance in my own health, I went on to try to understand how do other cultures approach health and healing. And that's when I studied Chinese medicine and acupuncture and Ayurveda and became a yoga teacher, which is such a cliche, but it was helpful and studied functional medicine and nutrition, psychedelic therapy, and all of that 
informs everything I do with patients, which is think about them holistically. Why are they not well in their life? Is it, you know, this so-called genetic chemical imbalance? Does it have to do with their daily habits? Is it a deep, unmet psycho-spiritual need? And I take all of this into consideration and, and try to help people lead fulfilling lives. That's is there something you experienced in your life when you were younger or with a family member or a friend that that made this particularly pertinent to you? So many things. I think, you know, the story is always messier in reality than it comes across in the narrative. But there are a couple watershed moments. And for me, in my 20s, I was really unwell. And I had a lot of states of physical imbalance. I had polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, I had irritable bowel syndrome, ocular migraines, joint issues, the beginnings of autoimmune disease, um, couldn't get my period, couldn't poop, couldn't, you know, nothing was working in my body. And I was a medical school student. I was doing everything seemingly right, eating right, exercising right. I was like, why is this not working? And when I went to see my gynecologist and I told her I hadn't gotten a period in six months, She's like, okay, you have PCOS, you'll be infertile, but we'll have treatments to support that. She said that with not even a modicum of bedside manner to a 23-year-old woman. I was like, what? And, um, and she said, but it's okay. We'll just put you back on the pill and that'll fix your period. And at the time, I did not yet have the vocabulary or the way of making sense of the functional medicine approach to health, which at its, you know, the central premise is basically address problems at the root rather than just suppressing symptoms. And, but I did walk away scratching my head. I felt very dismissed. I felt a little gaslit. And I was like, wait a second, I am the product of some 500 generations of successful reproduction. Why did it stop with me? Is this maybe not a genetic destiny? Is there perhaps something going on that is causing this state of imbalance? So I wasn't satisfied with the idea that the pill would fix my period. That's, that's purely just a Band-Aid. And I wanted to understand how could I fundamentally heal. So that was certainly one of the points along my path that had me thinking maybe there's more to the story than what I've been taught in the hallowed halls of allopathic medicine. So when you're, when, when you're at medical school, you obviously are learning about lots of different chemicals, different medicines, how they work, how they affect the body. Was there an element while you were studying when they said you need to go back on the pill, was an element of cynicism around this standard type of stuff. Was it more cynicism about that or was it more, is this the only way? I don't think I was sufficiently cynical yet at that point. I think that... <laughs> sufficiently cynical. <laughs> today I am. I'm plenty cynical about you know the role of the pharmaceutical industry and how to what degree they have our best interests in mind and to what degree they marionette our education and our expert panels and our guidelines and what gets published in medical journals. I'm, I'm very cynical now. At the time, I was like, the pill, okay, you know, it'll give me clear skin and easier periods. Sign me up. You know, I didn't really think like, does this come at a cost? I get why people explore alternatives. I get why people are curious about what else is out there. Because for so many of us, we're we don't think we are. We think we're independent thinkers, but we're institutionalized. We're, we're channeled, aren't we, down a certain path from, from anything from politics to prescriptions. You know, when you think about it, it's, it's so much of it is conditioning through you know, as you've grown up to learn a certain way. And then the, the, the media, the way that it presents itself to you. We were 
just seeing results of some of the pharmaceutical companies coming through the other day and the amount of money that they're making on the back of the the drug for corona and uh, what that what they put together there and i think that it takes a certain type of person to to step outside of that kind of channel and say right what else is going on out there you know i might have heard a bit of this i might have heard a bit of that rather than dismiss it i'm going to explore and investigate is that how you felt? Yeah, that came that came slowly. I think another moment that really changed how I was thinking about this was during my surgery rotation in medical school. And I remember we were standing around an appendectomy when you're removing somebody's appendix. And a lot of the time in the OR, you're actually just shooting the shit. There's just a lot of tedium and meticulous steps being taken. And, um, and you're just making conversation. There might be a radio playing in the background. And I asked this attending surgeon, I said, you know, I was like, this guy's probably given this a lot of thought. He's stood over appendectomies for, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of hours in his life. Um, and I was like, what do you think causes appendicitis? And he whipped around and said, we don't ask why, we just cut. And for me, that encapsulated why I'm not a good fit for Western medicine. And I appreciate I appreciate our heroic interventions. We are very good at reacting to a problem that has already happened. If you had a heart attack, if you got in a car accident, if you didn't know how to prevent appendicitis and you have appendicitis, thank God for Western medicine. But just in my bones, what I'm interested in is going upstream and asking why and understanding what is contributing to this. And of course, the next part of that inquiry is like, and what can we do about that? And for me, there's no area that's more compelling than, than being around the conversation of mental health with this, because we are being taught that mental health is the result of a genetic chemical imbalance. And that suggests that it's a destiny and a fixed trait, and there's nothing to be done about it. But I, even before I was seeing patients in my practice, I had my own personal experience of the fact that I was quite depressed. And for me... It, what actually did the trick was a variety of diet and lifestyle interventions, and then I was no longer depressed. And it really pushed back on this idea that it's a genetic chemical imbalance. And even though there are other people in my family with mental health issues, even for them, it's often come down to diet and lifestyle changes that make the difference. So I realized this is a much more empowering and most importantly, hopeful message is that there's something we can do about this and we're not stuck. Okay, we're going to dive into some stuff here. Okay, so in 2012, three big events took place in my life within the space of a week. And I went into, uh, within six weeks of that, went into a dark and deep depression to the point where I was ready to take my own life and planned it and was ready to execute upon it, flew back to the UK to say goodbye to my children, the whole the whole hog. Luckily, my, my, my dad was aware um, of my state and my condition and he, unknowing to me, drove me to a, to a place called the Priory in the UK and into meet a psychiatrist. I spent a week with that, five days with that psychiatrist who taught me to understand that the damage that I would cause to my children if I took my own life. And he, in essence, talked me out of it. That, so that was 2012, um, maybe February, March. February, March, yeah. I was then depressed, heavily depressed, for 2012 to 2018, 17, 18, heavily depressed. 
only the closest people knew. Most people didn't. They thought I was this bundle of fun and, and joy and you know, enthusiasm that you see right now. And I was offered medication on many occasions. In fact, at one point, there was an insistence on prescribing me with antidepressants, which at no time did I take. Now, I'm not in that place now, okay, and I'm in a completely different place. But one of the activities that helped me keep above water was exercise and going to the gym every day with a set routine and having a trainer. So I felt obliged to make sure I was there enabled the start of my day just to be a little bit lighter than the dark. And I'm sure you know all about this kind of stuff. How would you describe what depression and anxiety is? Because I want to get onto some of the remedies you have, but I, I, I want your interpretation of what it actually is, because this is what I was told. I have a chemical imbalance. The medication will deal with that chemical imbalance. And after two or three months, you'll start to get much better. That was what it was. And no matter who I spoke to, it was a chemical imbalance. Nobody ever said to me, just show me what you eat. Nobody ever said to me, show me what, what, you, what do you drink? What do you consume? No one ever, no one ever, never went down that path with me. Now, I'm not, obviously, I'm not a big fat or any, anything like that. So I'm relatively healthy. But nobody was asking that kind of question. I just felt. Like I was talking an awful lot and telling people my problems. And I, for a year, I'd work with somebody and then I didn't seem to get anywhere. And a year, the year would be the next person, another year, the next person who would listen. I'd tell the story all over again, but it didn't seem to, to create any form of solution for me. Um, so, yeah. What is depression? Okay. Get comfortable. So <laughs> I think that... Um, First of all, I do want to caveat that I am not one of these holistic practitioners that's dogmatically against medication. I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medication. It's not my first line treatment for depression or anxiety. That's different from my training where it would have been the first line treatment. But I think that when I, when I meet someone and they're depressed or anxious, I'm thinking across three main lines or, or I really think of them as valences that can be contributing to their symptoms. We're taught depression and anxiety is a diagnosis, the end of the inquiry. It's the answer. You gather up all of these different symptoms. And if you have a certain constellation of symptoms and it checks enough boxes, it qualifies for a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. I mean, we, that that's just patently wrong. Um, it's the beginning of the inquiry. When, when someone says they're anxious, when they're depressed, when they meet a lot of criteria for one of these diagnoses, to me, that just tells me here's how their body is manifesting imbalance. This is how it's showing up. But it's not the answer. It's not like, oh, okay, you have the gene for depression. You are depressed. End of story. It tells me, well, let's investigate. Let's look under the hood. And the three main areas I'm looking at are, and one other just sidebar here is that we're taught it's this chemical imbalance and that it's genetic. This will be a little bit of a controversial statement, but that's a story. That's marketing. And it's not to say chemical brain chemistry doesn't matter. It matters. I think if anything, it's a downstream effect of other states of imbalance. Um, but the idea that we are born with a genetic chemical imbalance that's corrected by a pill that will then fill our so-called empty serotonin tank is too simplistic, not actually substantiated by the medical literature. It's always been a story. It, it's not just marketing or sort of evil pharma. It's 
scientists trying to make sense. You know, why does this treatment work? Well, it's modulating serotonin. Maybe the reason it works is that depression is low serotonin. The trouble is that the evidence hasn't really ever, it hasn't borne out. So well, I've got to stop you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe it as anything but exactly that. Yeah. I must have been through in the UK and in, in Dubai where I live, probably 12 psychotherapists or psychiatrists. And it's always been described the same way. It's really hard to hear someone tell me that all of these people that I put my trust in and, and believed in that were experts in what they do could have got it so wrong. Yeah. Well, let's always ask why. So it's our mm. training, which is in turn influenced by the medical literature, which is in turn influenced by what gets chosen to be studied, what gets published, which is, you know, for the most part, the vast majority of that determined by the pharmaceutical and biotech industries, you know, very little by government agencies. And, um, and it's, it's very often well-meaning physicians and scientists trying to make sense of a lot of human suffering. Um, but we actually just had a paper come out now about maybe a month ago in, I think it's the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry, really showing that this is, it's not serotonin. It was never so simple. And for example, there's a competing hypothesis of depression, something called the cytokine hypothesis or the inflammatory hypothesis of depression, which is really saying um, levels of depression track with cytokines, which are inflammatory markers. And that's actually far more substantiated by the medical literature, even than the monoamine hypothesis or the one that says it's a serotonin imbalance. And, but I'm not here to say inflammation is the sole root cause of depression. It is one of many possible causes. Um, but all of this is to say that that, that story about serotonin is, is not the whole story and not even ever really the simple silver bullet truth. So when I meet someone with depression or anxiety, I'm thinking about to what extent is their physical body out of balance? Are they inflamed? Are they deficient in certain micronutrients like vitamin B12 or folate um, or vitamin D? Um, are they chronically sleep deprived, which could be re related to habits? It could be related to chronic sleep apnea. Um, are they... Um, is their blood sugar just constantly on a roller coaster, which is a very common culprit when it comes to anxiety and especially panic disorder? Are they deficient in magnesium? Are their hormones out of balance? Is this actually an undiagnosed autoimmune thyroid condition masquerading as mental health issues? So on and so forth. So I'm thinking first about the physical body. That's the low-hanging fruit. Those mm -hmm. are the quick wins. And uh -huh. basically, it's recognizing that the brain is a physical organ it's impacted by the health of the body. Any state of physical imbalance in the body is affecting the brain and then showing up as states of um, imbalance in our mental health. That's the first valence. The second valence I'm thinking about, which is also something that really wasn't highlighted in my training, but I think I've been doing my patients a disservice this whole time by not addressing it, is that we have certain fundamental human needs for community, for a feeling of meaning and purpose in our lives. Um, and when we're going about our workaday lives and we're isolated, we're worshiping at the altar of work, um, when we're not seeking and asking the bigger questions, when we're not, when we're estranged from nature, as so many of us are in urban environments, um, there's a part in our hardwiring that's saying, I'm not safe, I'm not okay. 
and you know, hold on a minute. There's, there's, there's like, something quite interesting here because you, you, you've got this whole serotonin chemical imbalance that, that, that all of these these therapists say. Yet we've gone into a place over the last few years where loneliness has become enormously prevalent because people yeah. were locked down to then move into you can work from home if you want to, and it's almost like. You know, when you're at school, you can go home and have school dinner. You can have school dinners every day and you can have that crappy stuff. Or you can go home, if you like. We'll teleport you to your mum and she'll make you apple pie for lunch every day. And you're like, I'll go for the apple pie, thanks. And then four, four days later or four weeks later, you're like, hell no, get rid of that apple pie. You know, give me school dinners. And so I, I think that when we see what's happened, and because and, and, this, this impacted me, I, I, I need people. All right. I need to feel I belong. I need a sense of purpose. Um, my podcast went from a podcast that was literally only in person to something that had to go online. And even though we still do it online, my craving is to, well, that's why I, my eyes raised when you talked about coming to Cyprus. My, that, that for me carries so much more value to me because it's a chance of connecting in a, in a, in a, in a deeper way. And and, and feeling that you are part of something and belong. And so not, it's, it seems, as you said that, it just seems so obvious that putting two and two together should add this. Why, why does it have to be a serotonin imbalance? Why does it have to be a chemical problem? Why does it have to be that? You know, people get lonely for Christ's sake. They, then they get miserable when they get lonely. I mean, for goodness sake, surely that's a leader of depression if I get lonely. You know, that's, that's absolute common sense. You know, you're touching on something that, is a sort of at the, it's a fundamental way that informs how I think about mental health. When we talk about the genetic chemical imbalance, that's so-called, what we're really saying is like, well, the body was badly designed and it's kind of broken. And I actually very fundamentally believe that the body is decently well-designed. Like we could improve the knee joint maybe and menopause. We could talk about that, but it's generally well-designed and it generally functions well when given the right inputs and not given the wrong inputs. So when our needs are met, we're doing okay. And community and social connection is a fundamental need. And this, through an ancestral lens, makes a lot of sense because on the proverbial savanna of evolution, we were not the strongest species. We were not the fastest species. The reason we prevailed is that we were the species that really figured out how to cooperate. And it's for that reason that if we feel socially connected and held by community, we feel safe. And if we feel isolated in our work from home, you know, boxes, if we feel ostracized, if we feel canceled on social media, on some hardwired level, that feels like it's a matter of life or death. Because in our, you know, millennia of evolution, it really was a matter of life or death. And so it's for this reason that we need social connection to feel safe. And we're all different. You're so clearly very extroverted and you need a real like social connection buoys your energy. There will be somebody listening and they're like, oh, I like working from home. That calms my nervous system. I hated the happy hours and the small talk in the elevator. And so they need a different kind of social connection, but not zero. Um, and so, you know, I think we all have to recognize the granularity to this question. Some yeah, of us yeah. really want crowds and some of us actually need to get that need met in a way that's really bespoke and um, tailored to the way we like to connect, but we all need to connect. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's not about, as you say, the chit chat in the lift. Some people, it has to be, that connection has to be far more deep and meaningful from the outset. 
Um, yeah. uh, I, I'm making a documentary about human trafficking at the moment. And within that documentary, we are meeting people that, that have been through, again, unimaginable experiences. Not, not all of them are the life and soul mm-hmm. of the party, but, but fe- that, that feeling that somebody cares for them, that feeling that somebody hasn't necessarily completely got their back, but has got their back a bit, just changes just changes the, the whole body language, their whole demeanor, their where how their eyebrows sit, how their eyelids move, and you know how they and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, you care about me. And for some people, that's enough, isn't it? You bring up something that's you know just a little bit of a detour from the overarching sort of building through my understanding of mental health, but I think that um, a very fundamental need that we all have is to feel seen, heard, understood loved. And um, I get the question a lot, you know, how do I support the people in my life that are struggling with mental health issues? And there's this assumption that you need special training, you need to know the right thing to say or to do. And I think you bring your own humanity and you really witness somebody and really let them know you're there with them. And you fully hear and understand their experience. And we can all offer that to someone. And um, it is deeply therapeutic. And so it's, it's, I mean, I look forward to watching this documentary. I think it's really important work. I'm grateful that you're doing it. Hmm. Okay. How is anxiety different from depression? How, when you make comparisons of, of uh, and I don't know any of the numbers here, so please, please, if you've got some of that, would be great. Is, is, is depression bigger? Is anxiety bigger? Anxiety must fall into a whole bunch of different categories as well, subcategories from that title itself. So just give us a bit more of an insight around that. You might have to re-cue me on some of those questions. We'll see if I can retain it all. Um, definitely different. We'll talk about the differences in a second. Anxiety is more common, certainly more prevalent. Um, I, you know, struggled to find the stats to put in my book, but I'm never misses numbers in terms of recalling the stats. Some enormous quantity of humans on earth right now are anxious and a little bit less so depressed. And it both increased precipitously through the pandemic. Um, The way I think about the difference between anxiety and depression, I think of anxiety. So to really explain this well, I'll have to explain that third valence of how I think about mental health. But Mm -hmm. basically I think of anxiety as from a physiologic perspective, it's the body getting tripped into a stress response. And, um, and that can happen as a result of a genuine stressor, and it can happen as a result of a blood sugar dip or um, strong coffee or a hangover. And so that's where I think about anxiety as, you know, is this what I call false anxiety, which is not to invalidate the very real suffering, but to suggest that it has a straightforward physical cause and and a path out that's straightforward. So, you know, it might be drinking slightly less strong coffee, which is always a controversial conversation. And, um, And then there's true anxiety, which is not something to suppress. It's not something that's wrong with somebody. It's not something to pathologize. It's our inner compass nudging us to say, hey, something's really not okay here in my personal life, in my community, in the world at large. And so I think anxiety really has that quality of I'm uneasy about some potential uncertainty. And sometimes it is just the body getting tripped into a stress response from some seemingly benign aspect of modern life. And sometimes it's a deep psycho-spiritual knowing that something's really not okay. But I think we don't have to stay mired in that feeling. We can translate that feeling of anxiety 
into purposeful action. And once we're taking action, it doesn't feel the same. It, we start to feel imbued with purpose. It's not like the problem goes away, but it, we are not struggling in resistance and in suffering. We are in action. Um, depression is different. And I haven't written a book yet about depression. So I'm really like steeped in philosophizing about all things anxiety. Depression, just to sort of like my quick reflection on it would be, it's, it's not just the body in a stress response. It's the body lacking vitality. It's the body sort of hypo functioning and, and the brain in particular. And there's a lot that can contribute to that. It's, there's overlap with anxiety. It can be chronic sleep deprivation. It can be a hangover. It can be a micronutrient deficiency or an undiagnosed thyroid issue or a hormonal issue. I think it can also even be at the level of the mitochondria in the cell. Something about modern life damages the mitochondria, and there's a hypofunctioning of our cells' ability to make energy. And when that's happening in the neurons, in the brain, in the glial cells in the brain, that can show up as a feeling of everything is hard, everything is hopeless, and I'm despairing. Can I ask how old you are? Oh, yeah, I am 42. Okay, good. Secret, the secret to the universe. Uh, Hitchhiker's we, Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> we, I was there. So are Gen Z versus let's call the boomers, completely different in how they see, measure, and understand anxiety and depression compared to the boomers who clearly are retiring at the moment? Mm, so much so. I'm going to try to not wade in controversial waters here. So I I think no, no, let's go controversial. I think it's important because I think that different perspectives are, are really valuable. So, Yeah, let me see. I think about as maybe three major differences. Um, one is there are prophets, like they are here so much more viscerally connected to what's not right in the world. And they are talking about it. Like we all came of age with more stigma around mental health, more whispering, more, more things went unspoken. And the younger generations are talking about it with very little filter, with very little self-censorship and editing. And that's just beautiful. I think that's great. I think that they are very viscerally connected to what's wrong in the world. It's somewhat of a trauma response. They kind of came of age and it's like, boom, you have 9-11, you have a recession, you have the pandemic, you have all climate change, you have all of these really heavy things going on in their formidable years. And, um, and, and they're basically saying like, this world is, is broken and we need to respond. Um, I was born in 1980. Like there were a few years there, it was kind of like, seems like the world is getting better. And that's no longer the vibe, the feeling. Um, so that's number one. I think number two, this one's a little more, two and three get progressively more controversial. Number two is that I do think that we are, at least in the United States, which is the place I can speak for, we are cooking our children in a stew of toxicants. And I, being born in 1980, I was born just at the moment that we were transitioning to high fructose corn syrup, for example. So I sort of gestated in an environment of sugar. And then I came of age in an environment of high fructose corn syrup. And it got me really out of balance. And I ended up with PCOS and a number of other issues. I think that kids these days, from an epigenetic level, their genes, their, their gestation in utero, they have always been bathed in a really deranged food system 
where our food is um, nutritionally bankrupt, but also quite processed and inflammatory, where we're heavily using pesticides like Roundup that are creating a decimation of gut flora and leaky gut and quite a bit of systemic inflammation. We have more pharmaceutical interventions happening these days. So there's just this chemical stew that are, that's hitting kids. This doesn't even begin to explore the question of social media, which is massive, um, and just technology in general. The last piece here is that this is the one that I don't know exactly how I feel, but I just know that there's something here to explore, which is there's a, a dialectic, there's a tension between um, safetyism and coddling in youth and how that can be very supportive but can also maybe fail kids in terms of their ability to develop resilience, existing in tension with a kind of <laughs> not always completely benign neglect that can create quite a bit of resilience, but also maybe some um, deep questioning of our self-worth and, and a lot of trauma. And I feel like there is a sweet spot, and I'm not sure any generation has fully hit it. And so um, we are, you know, I think that when you raise kids in an environment that tells them they're fragile, they will believe themselves to be fragile. And um, and I think we are working through some of that these days. Okay, so let's let, 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 maybe let's put, maybe put an example around that particular point because that's really that really resonates with me. So the food they consume. So in the UK, when people get divorced, you see sometimes see the husband on the Saturday in McDonald's with the kids and they call them McDonald's dads. Okay. I'm sure that happens in the States as well. And there's nothing wrong. Dad can't cook. So he takes the kids out for something to eat that what also happens in divorce, which is a high percentage of relationships is that there's an element of guilt. And so then love is then purchased or there's a, there's a desire to purchase love or for that child to have a good time when they're with that particular parent, which includes the ice cream, the candy, the whatever it is, the popcorn and the Coca-Cola at the movies. My, my kids, okay, so I got divorced when my kids were very young and I was one of those people. I was one of those dads that wanted to give my kids everything. So they went to the best schools, they, went, they had the best of the best of the best of everything. And I now worry about the problem that I might have caused. And that problem I might have caused with relation, in relation to how, how they see the world, what they expect from the world, um, and the fact that life has been to some degree handed to them on a plate, okay? And I don't mean as in the food. I mean, life has become, it was very easy for them. And then you add that to the, the essentially the bad work I did by allowing them to consume what they consumed for the time they did. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure there's loads and loads of people out there that are in exactly the same boat. Did I get it wrong? Let's start from a conceit, which is parenting is impossible. <laughs> I, I operate, I have a daughter. I, I operate from that conceit at all times. So there's never shaming, blaming. We're all just out here, flawed, imperfect people trying to do our sometimes lousy best. And we're trying to survive. We're trying to get our own needs met. We're trying to do right by our kids. It's hard. And I do not stand on any kind of pedestal of like, you know, superiority when it comes to parenting. I'm in these trenches and, and struggling with it on a day-to-day -day basis. In addition to that, relationships are hard. Relationships are so hard. And so, you know, we're also trying to figure out our dynamic with our partners, with our co-parents, and it's all just so tough. 
I learn most from my patients. And I had a patient say something that has really resonated for me around parenting. She said, we really have two goals as parents. Um, we need to teach our kids how to self-regulate. And we need to show them that they're a miracle. And I think that it's tough to do this. And when, when we are ourselves struggling, because for so many reasons, we're not getting our own needs met as parents, it's just tough. We don't have proper parental leave. We don't have proper you know, childcare support, all of these issues. Um, we work excessively long hours. It's really hard to hold that space for teaching a kid to self-regulate. And we also have a world right now that sells us around every corner. Hey, you don't need to sit in the middle of this difficult feeling and learn how to tolerate it. We will dazzle you with fill in the blank, you know, something shiny, something sugary, some screen somewhere. Our world is telling us, don't bother learning to self-soothe. We will numb you out with this addictive thing. And so um, we didn't learn in childhood and it's really hard for us to hold this space for our kids to ride out the feelings, not to mention like being able to hold their feelings. Like we're, we, most of us came of age in an emotion phobic culture where it was be strong, don't cry, um, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's a lot of shame around big feelings. And so now we're working on trying to not let our own discomfort with big feelings get in the way of holding space for our kids to go through their big feelings. And and then I think it's a difficult balance to strike. I, I have absolutely no temptation to say like shame or blame about how anybody approaches this. It's just, we're all in here figuring this out together. And I think it's never too late to say, hey, I don't think I showed up for you right in this way. Like, can we try a different tack? If I wanted to overcome either depression or anxiety, and there were five of the most important pieces of information or rules that I could follow, what would they be? Hmm. Um, you'll, you'll see that I always struggle to narrow it down, <laughs> but hey, uh, uh, okay. how many naturally would you say there were 10, 20? What would you oh, say? there's 50,000, but one doesn't have to do them all. I'm, I, that's part of why I had to write a book and not just like an Instagram post is that <laughs> I think of it as a buffet. You put everything out there and you let people go to what they're drawn to. You know, so for one person, it's this, another person, it's that What you know, one person's like, oh, hey, that seems doable. And that resonates. I'll give that a try is someone else's like worst nightmare and overwhelms them. And so but I'll narrow it down as best I can. Um, I think that let's start with the physical and end with the psycho spiritual. I think that sleep is such a good place to start. And um, sleep in sleep quality impacts every dimension of mental health. And it is free and it feels good and we all want to sleep better and I think in the past there was this attitude that was standing in the way of good sleep we weren't prioritizing it we thought I'm Superman I need less sleep than other people or I'll sleep when I'm dead or sleep is for the lazy and I think people like Ariana Huffington really shifted the cultural conversation around sleep that sleep is actually your secret weapon and sleep is actually the key to success and, you know, as if that even needs to be our motivator. So we're now prioritizing it, but it still eludes people because modern life comes with electricity 
which then suppresses our melatonin and dysregulates our circadian rhythm. And so with the best of intentions, we're still not sleeping well. So we do have to get strategic about blue light. And that is partly having a circadian regulating walk outside first thing in the morning and making sure that you're putting on a pair of blue blocking glasses after sunset so that the blue light in our environment is not suppressing our melatonin and disrupting our circadian rhythm. Sleep is number one. There are strategies to improve it. And then um, number two is food. And I recognize that in 2022, this is a uh, nuanced messy conversation. And I'll just say the task at hand here is is to recognize that our brain is this organ that requires certain raw materials to function properly. And those raw materials are our vitamins, minerals, nutrients, and we need to get it from food. And in the modern environment, it's hard to do this. It's hard to check the boxes of the nutritional scavenger hunt. Not to mention, we need to do this with an attitude of ease and pleasure and convenience and affordability and sharing in the experience with people that we love, not from a place of obsessiveness and obsessive meal prep and orthorexia or fearing food and feeling like we're fragile. And it's very difficult to strike that balance. People run in both directions. They're either very orthorexically kind of perfectionistic and obsessed about here's how I feed myself right, declining social engagements, which is always counter-therapeutic, or they're running in the other direction and basically saying, you know, F it, I'm just going to eat like a teenager. And then that leaves them pretty anxious and depressed because they're micronutrient depleted and overfed, undernourished and inflamed. So food is tricky, but the compass that I think is most simple is generally err on the side of eating real food, generally err on the side of avoiding fake food, and then give yourself wiggle room and lots of compassion and grace. Do it it's, all exclusively from a place of self-love. Yeah. While you're on that subject, there's two good examples of that that come to mind um, that most people would remember. Maybe they don't. Morgan Spurlock, when he did Super Size yeah. Me and that, that yeah. documentary there where he showed by having a Big Mac or whatever it was every day how not only it affected him physically but mentally as well, but also fat, sick and nearly dead. And in, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but that do you know that one? Yeah, no, I haven't so seen fat, it. Fat, sick and nearly dead was a guy, an Australian guy who had a medical condition um, called viticaria or something, uh, urticaria or something. Urticaria. Um, and he, he was heavily overweight, heavily medicated, came to America, uh, and he decided he was going to spend in New York 30 days juicing, just juice for 30 days. And the first three days of juicing, he was all over the place in his hotel room. He said, I feel like I've got the worst hangover in the world. But on the fourth day, he woke up and he felt great. He had a good night's sleep. Then he went for the rest of the 26 days till the end of that period and started to see differences. So then what he decided to do was find out how he could fit a juicer into the back of a car and make it work. And then he drove from New York to Los Angeles. And on on that journey, he just juiced. And his, his juice rule was very simple. Um it was either two or three vegetables and one fruit in every juice, uh, everything three to four times a day, just a, you know, whatever, however much it was in the juice. Obviously he lost a load of weight cause he wasn't eating the pizza and stuff, but it became more positive, healthier, happier. Okay. And all of that. He met another guy on route at a truck stop that by chance had the same urticaria illness and he mm. helped him get the same result as well, which is fast. It's fantastic 
uh, documentary. It's on YouTube. When I when I look at that, it, it demonstrates, and you know, diet's one thing, and losing weight's one thing. But I think I think that that has a lot to do with how you feel about yourself when you're when you are fat, carrying extra weight, feeling slovenly, feeling slow, feeling low. So they're good examples of of your point, actually. So fats are nearly dead, and then Morgan Spurlock with that, the impact of food. Just, just by watching somebody consume it. And then you talk about, it's not just about that whole, it's not about whole food, is it? It's about not only whole food, it's, but it's the right kind of whole food because you talk about pesticides and you know, then there's GMO. So I work with a company, one of the sponsors of the podcast is a company called Smartcast. And what Smartcast do is vertical farming no GMO, no pesticides. They've developed this technology. They, the quality of their product is 10 times greater than anything else because of the way they grow it in a completely clean environment. Now, I went, bizarrely, I flew to Amsterdam. They said, Spencer, we're opening up the, 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 the lettuce-making factory. We'd like you to come to a lettuce-tasting event. And I'm like, shut up. I'm not going to fly to Amsterdam to go and watch let- taste lettuce. Lettuce don't taste the same. <laughs> It's like, they're like, no, we want you to come. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Anyway, get there. There's, 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 there's their lawyers, their accountants, their bankers, uh, investors that are all there for this evening of tasting lettuce. And I honestly thought for the first, I don't know, half an hour I was there that I was on a, some form of wind-up. I was being punked or something. <laughs> but once we started tasting the lettuce, it tasted different. It tasted nicer, cleaner, fresher. There was something about it. There was no, and I, I was like, okay, I ate some humble pie. So <laughs> this is my little piece of, uh, of, of, of experience, I suppose, to share there. So you agree? And I agree. And, and I'll tack on to this, this whole conversation of, of how do we feed ourselves, like an eye towards nutrient density, certainly, which that within that concept of generally trying to eat real food, you want to eat something that was grown in healthy soil or was part of a healthy animal and in the you know soil or it can be a hydroponic environment. Um, but I think that the operating, the whole process of, of feeding ourselves, we have to get back of doing it from a place of self-love. This is an act that we do to radically treat ourselves well, to nourish ourselves, not from a place of so I can be thin, so that I can be small, so I can please the patriarchy, so that, you know, we have all of this messaging put on us all the time about how we should feed ourselves and why, and we have to cancel out all that noise. We nourish ourselves because we love ourselves. Um, and I'll, I'll move on to number three, but I realize there's a caveat I want to add to number one around sleep, which is okay. don't bring the phone into the bedroom. That's probably one of the most profound changes we can do to improve the quality of our sleep. It could be a whole hour-long conversation itself just on that yeah, point. We'll just say that. What percentage of the population do you think have their phone by their bed? 150%. It's, I, I have yet to meet anybody who, you know, basically it's, it's my favorite kind of thing to bring up. When I go into corporate environments, I'll bring this up. I'll usually ask for a show of hand. Nearly everybody raises their hand. They're bringing their phone into the bedroom. It's on the bedside table or it's like held on their chest, you know, while they sleep. And um, it's disrupting our circadian rhythm by suppressing our melatonin release because of the blue spectrum light. It is ingeniously designed to not have a natural stopping cue. So we scroll endlessly and we stay up inappropriately late and get what's called overtired where our body releases our stress hormone. And that's all not even taking into account the fact that we now have the ability to know about what's wrong in every corner of the earth. 
and we didn't evolve with the ability to triage that much information and that much suffering. We, we evolved knowing about our immediate communities of 100, 120 people, and now we can doom scroll about everything wrong in the world, and uh, it matters, and I think that there's something happening on Earth right now that it's, um, it's good that we're aware of it and that we can take action accordingly, but it's a lot on our system, right, as we're supposed to feel safe enough to surrender into sleep. So just don't bring the phone into the bedroom. Keep your doom scrolling to the earlier hours of the day, and we all sleep better and feel better off. Okay, so there's for all of our viewers and listeners, you've heard this before. I know you, some, maybe a trainer, maybe a family member may have said this. Okay, this is an expert telling you, all right, don't be a donor and ignore it. If you suffer with any form of, of anxiety or depression in any way, you you feel that 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 issue or you've got someone close to you that does you know if you repeat habits that cause problems then you're not going to get anywhere are you common sense has got to tell you that you need to do the right thing i know okay i used to have my telephone right by my bed all the time okay because my, my here was my justification my alarm is on my phone where do you want me to keep it it took me three minutes to go on Amazon and order an alarm clock, okay, and have it delivered to the house. And I tell you what, the alarm is a much nicer noise when it goes off in the morning. It goes off gently and it just tells me a little bit of a wake-up story and I get up nicely. With my phone alarm, we don't have that. But also what you have to remember is with your phone alarm, you pick your phone up and then it's in your hand and it's on. And the moment you've stepped out of bed, you've got it there and your instinct is to pick it up straight away and start staring at whatever messages you're getting through. So listen, Ellen's talking sense. Listen, and I'm a good example of somebody who's done that. I've done loads wrong, by the way, okay? Loads wrong. I'll probably continue to, but again, pay attention to that. Right, Ellen, carry on. All right, let's move quickly through three, four, and five. Number three, staying in that physical realm, but just touching on the psycho-spiritual, movement and nature. And combining those is, you know, a nice, efficient way to do this. If you can possibly move your body outside in fresh air and sunshine with the sensory gestalt of the natural world, you know, hearing wind through leaves, smelling all of the smells of being in any kind of green space, that's going to improve your mood. It's going to um, help you secrete endogenous endorphins, regulate your sleep. It, it's, it outclasses our psychiatric medications. So if you can move your body in nature, this is terrific. Number four is um, the fancy scientific way to talk about it is called completing the stress cycle. Uh, the way I can simplify it is to say like, we need to give ourselves permission to feel our feelings and shake off what we're carrying and cry. I think we're due for a cultural rebranding around crying right now. We, when we cry, we apologize. We try to make it as small as possible. We suck it back in and we actually need to recognize crying like podcasting is free therapy and you want to dive into it and let it be as big as possible. You want to have a complete experience it discharges a component of our stress response, and it, it lets us feel a lot better afterward. We, we move the energy up and out. And so we need to be metabolizing our feelings, not bottling them up, not stuffing them down. They don't go away. They just get lodged and become chronic headaches and chronic back pain and digestive issues. Move through your feelings in the moment, and crying is a great way to do that. Okay. Really interesting you say that. Anybody that's listening and watching to this right now can tell me a time that they had a jolly good cry and they didn't feel much better after it. Who's ever done that? You know, every time I've ever cried, I felt blooming good after it. Now there's different ways that I cry. 
I'm terrible with movies. <laughs> and so I'll be like, I'm in the movie. I'm like, go, you can save him, champ. You know, whatever it might be. <laughs> I was on the plane on the way to Cyprus today and I was watching this documentary about this um, this guy, the British version of Evil Knievel, and he had a crash and then he was in a, in a coma. He was paralyzed and they did this thing, big event for him. And, and I knew this guy as a kid. I had his posters on my wall and I was literally watching, going, yay, bloody Eddie kid. I love Eddie kid. And, and I don't know what it is, but whenever you have a good cry, the world just becomes a little bit better. So how do you encourage people that, you know, my, my wife very rarely cries unless it's a, a sad movie. And she's like, don't put sad stuff on the telly. I don't want to cry. However, other people I know quite freely. My mum here in Cyprus always cries when she's had too much wine and she's talking about how proud she is of me. Ooh, the tears come out. So, how, how can we help people? Because I, I, want, I want to give them something here. How can we help people to feel comfortable and good and positive about crying? Ooh, I mean, part of what I'm trying to do is just give people permission and give people permission to give themselves permission. So part of it is just a mentality switch that you know that feeling when you're starting to tear up, you start to feel that feeling. A lot of us reflexively suppress it. And next time, have that blonde doctor whose name you forgot by now you know, have my voice in your ear saying like, don't suppress it, dive into that. Just try it out. Let it be big. Let it be complete. Um, I do think movies are really good. Like a Pixar movie is a sure thing. You're going to cry at some point. And if you need that to get your engine starting, fine. Um, there's a whole longer conversation around the role of things like psychedelics, which, um, you know, caveat supply, not always safe, not always indicated, but when safe and indicated, when appropriate, these are really a promising new line of treatment in mental health. And I think part of why they can be so effective is that they really give you the ability to purge. And that can be in many different forms. And sometimes it's in the form of shaking or even vomiting, but it can also be in very big crying. And I know for me, you know, I've been grieving the loss of my mom since 2015, and I was not shy as a griever. I really was primally wailing on my living room floor. I went through it. And then when I started to work with psychedelic medicine, I realized, nope, there's a lot of grief left to process. And the, the amount of grieving and really deep primal wailing and crying I do in ceremony, it feels so healthy and helpful and nourishing. And it decreases the burden I carry around. Um, so, you know, Permission, Pixar, psychedelics, your choice, what's going to work for you. But that's, um, those are some strategies. If anyone only picks up that one line from the conversation, they would think we were mad. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's my approach to treatment in a nutshell. <laughs> the last okay. one, number five. Yeah. Yes, go. Um, we have to end with this one because it is, we, we talked about it earlier. It's most important. It's, it's just community. We need to connect. That's what's happening here in human experience. And, and we, need, we need the experience of love and connection and not saying it's easy. You can't just say like, oh, here, you know, here's how to stabilize your blood sugar in three steps and here's how to have deep, meaningful, transcendent connection in your life in three steps. It's not as easy, but we do at least need to prioritize it. I give everybody my blessing that if um, prioritizing community means you squander everything else we recommended today, that's cool. Um, sometimes we do actually need to say, well, I should be going to bed at 9.45 p.m., but a person that I love is coming through town and we're going to stay up until 2 in the morning talking. Great. Um, we need to be prioritizing connection. 
It doesn't have to look the same for everybody, as we mentioned earlier. If you're more introverted, it might feel good to be connecting one-on-one. It might feel good to have a conversation in a car ride or on a Mm -hmm. walk where you're not making eye contact, but you're sort of in parallel. Whatever feels good to you, you can trust that, but I urge you to connect. Okay. I've just started thinking about this. What you've just told us, five steps or five, five ideas, concepts, they make total common sense. So that leads me to think that we have departed from common sense and have fallen into so many bad habits that makes you having to sit and talk to me today about getting a good night's sleep along with eating high-quality, well-produced, non-processed whole foods to nature, movement, walking through a forest, being on the beach and walking with the water lapping up against your feet, going for a run, to giving yourself permission to express emotions and cry, to connection and love. If all of those areas were good in anybody's life, that sounds like a pretty good life to live to be honest with you but it is in many respects common sense because that's what we should do why is there such a fight against this kind of stuff why is there such a battle with what's right and what's good what's stopping us from from doing that as a society and i should point out that life that you just described is not without challenge because that Mm -hmm. person who's getting all of their needs met will still experience loss will still experience Mm -hmm. Um, rejection, hardship, mm-hmm. stressors will always be there, but our ability to cope and move through it and derive meaning from it um, is, it, it does come back to whether our needs are met on a physical level, on a psychospiritual level. I think that, um, you know, I think probably a lot of this actually comes back to the fact that survival is tough and we solved for a lot of the big problems. Like, having a reliable food source and in solving for that with agriculture with now we shop at a grocery store you know um, in solving for that we got very far from what our genes evolved to expect and so we just i think now need to get strategic to give ourselves the best of both worlds we don't have to be out there hunting we don't have to live at the sort of mercy of the vicissitudes of weather, the vicissitudes of whether you had a, a lucky hunting day. Um, we can get food from a grocery store, but what comes with that is monocrop and over farming and depleted soil and pesticides and all of these things that get our bodies out of balance. So we just need to kind of find our happy medium. Maybe you're shopping more at the farmer's market. Maybe you are prioritizing sunshine, nature, and community a little bit more than just sitting in our cubicles on our Zooms, um, working all day and worshiping at that altar. I think it does come from a good place of we were just trying to solve for basic survival, and now we've just gotten very far from what inputs help our genes thrive. And I think that it is possible to find a balance that's realistic in modern life, where we're still living in this modern existence, but we're attending to those fundamental needs. I love talking to you. You're brilliant. Okay. It's, 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 it's so much wisdom and so much positive that's coming from you that I'm just processing through and thinking about all aspects of my life. Now I wrote a book 
few years ago. <clears throat> and I hated writing my book. I didn't enjoy the journey at all. It was it was repetitive. It was constantly reading over chapters, constantly, you know, going over stuff, researching, going over it. Just it, it became a real labor of love for me. But you've written an awesome book. It's called The Anatomy of Anxiety. Tell me why you decided to write it and who is it for? The main reasons I decided to write it, I mean, one, I was certainly noticing the trend that everybody coming into my office was anxious. Everyone commenting on my Instagram was anxious. And I recognized there's a big problem here that that needs some tending to. And I love this. I think it's an Alan Watts quote of, if a problem remains persistently insoluble, uh, we have to consider that we might be thinking about it in the wrong way. And I think we've been thinking about depression, anxiety, mental health in general in the wrong way. And I mean, I was born to be a weirdo that has a heterodox way of thinking about things. So I'm happy to come in with all of my zany ideas about mental health if it can help people. Um, so I did feel like I had a different approach and that that might relieve some human suffering. And, um, and I've realized that there's... Um, you know, I was happy in my private practice seeing patients one-on-one. -on -one. I still am. I still do that. I love it. I find it to be incredibly fulfilling work. But this problem is getting bigger by the day. And I think I just recognize this has to be more of a one-to-many um, approach because um, I, I kind of wanted to believe if I just help my individual patients, there'll be this ripple effect and a ramification. And then I thought, you know, okay, I'll put this message on social media. But there's no nuance and there's no complexity of ideas on social media. So I was like, I need 250 pages of someone's dedicated attention to actually really take them on a journey of, of a different way of thinking about mental health. So it had to be a book. And I, I'm with you. It was a tough process writing a book. It is, isn't it? It's not, people think, you know, oh, I'd love to write a book one day. It'd be so good to write a book. I was one of those people. And I was like, what have I got myself into? Yeah. I mean, I was an English major. I wrote essays. And this was a long essay to write. <laughs> it was a three-year essay. Yeah. Did you turn it into an audio book? Yes, it's on Audible. Okay, so we can get it on Audible. We could get it on Amazon as well? Yeah. Okay, fine. Excellent stuff. And there's going to be, after this, I'm going to get questions. Okay, there's going to be a lot of people that come to me and, and, and want to ask specific questions. If my audience would like to engage with you, they can, can, can you give them permission to follow you on Instagram or a channel and direct those questions at you? Yeah, of course. I, that's pretty much why I'm on Instagram. And so okay, great. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm at Ellen Vora MD. And if anybody wants to um, bring questions, bring feedback there, I'm always open to thinking about this differently and in, you know, engaging in respectful debate about how to think about this. I, I'm not dogmatically married to my ideas. I'm constantly learning and growing. That's fantastic. So guys, if you have questions for Ellen, please don't hesitate. Go to her, ask those questions. You know, I won't be able to answer all of them for you. So go directly to her and, and engage. I'm sure that there'll be some value to have you had there. Dr. Ellen Vora, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. I can probably spend the next three hours with you and I still wouldn't be done, but I'm conscious of everybody's time. So thank you to come and join us today on the Spencer Lodge podcast. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a delightful conversation. I appreciate it. Let's <laughs> go.